Are you a teacher or student who's always wanted to learn more about CubeSats in the classroom? Then don't miss this opportunity. The inaugural SmallSat Education Conference will serve as an important East Coast gathering where educators, administrators, and students will learn about CubeSats, ThinSats, and high-altitude balloon programs. Our target audiences are faculty and students from middle school all the way through college. Presenters will include existing university teams and industry experts. Attendance is free for students and educators, and exhibitors and vendors are encouraged to showcase their products and services. To learn how to start your own program, join us on October 29th and 30th at the Center for Space Education Building at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center. Please visit the website for more information and to reserve a space. You can find that at smallsateducation.org. That's S-M-A-L-L-S-A-T education.org. Let's go to Space Blue Sky Learning, Episode 73, a university talkie and techie, combining policy and engineering. Today, Kevin and I meet with Andres Permui. He's a third-year physics major and math minor at Georgetown University. He aspires to receive a master's degree in mechanical engineering and robotics in order to pursue a career in advanced robotics and automation. Andres' current goal is to work with automation that can be utilized in the space industry for extraterrestrial exploration and excavation. In addition, Andres helps lead the Georgetown University Space Initiative as the co-president, and he also conducts space policy research at the Beyond Earth Institute. We look forward to working with him on several projects, including the Amaris Lunar Rover. And of course, as always, we hope that you'll stay tuned after the episode for our takeaways. Well, welcome, Andres. Thank you so much for meeting with us today. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about what got you excited about space. Yes, um, thank you guys for having me again. I'm excited to be here. So I have been in, I've been interested in space ever since I was little. I was definitely one of those stereotypical kids that wanted to be an astronaut, but knew nothing about space in general, but just was fantasized by um, everything space related. I remember in third grade, a friend of mine and I had like a folder of discoveries that we made, which were actually just us discovering things on Wikipedia, thinking we were the first ones to find it. Um, so in once I started getting into middle school, I remember astronomy was always like a hobby of mine. And in high school, I started getting when I started getting more serious about my academics and thinking about college and what I wanted to do as a career. I I believe that since I mean since the space industry seemed like rocket science essentially, I wasn't sure it was I was cut out for it in terms of industry. So I focused more on the engineering aspect of things and space got a little bit away from me and it wasn't until I, I arrived at Georgetown and joined GOSI and started networking and started learning more and more about what the possibilities and the opportunities in the space industry that I realized that this is in fact what I want to do this is the area of work I want to spend uh, my career in and ever since then that's all I've been doing Everything okay. I've been doing up until this point um, since I've been in, in the university has been space related. Now, can you explain the acronym you dropped and uh, tell us a little bit about that organization at Georgetown? Yeah, sure thing. So GOSI is the Georgetown University Space Initiative. 
we are a policy focused chapter of SEDS USA. Um, so we do have uh, different teams. So we do uh, work with the different fields in the space industry. We have a policy team, we have a commercial team, we have a science space exploration team that I lead. And we have a, no, I think I, think I covered all of them actually. Um, I am also the co-president of the Georgetown University Space Initiative. Um, so what, we are a completely student-run organization, and our goal is to, one, create an environment where any student can come in to learn about space and the space industry, but we also are trying to shape the next generation of leaders in the space industry. So what we do is we work with our students to write articles and white papers about various issues and topics in both space policy and the space industry in general. And when we're not writing papers, we bring in speakers from different organizations and companies um, that come to learn, that come to speak with our members and teach them not only how they got there to where they are today, but also what they do at work and um, what they do for the industry. Well, I love that you're talking about policy. I've, Kevin will tell you, like some of our students, we, we've actually, that's one of our areas of interest as well. And I was thinking back to when you said Georgetown, and uh, I was thinking like, most of the time people think that that's going to be you know political science or something like that what i love is that you've been able to take that area of interest or that passion and find you know aerospace within that so even a school like georgetown you can do amazing aerospace work tell us a little bit about your decision when you were looking at colleges and and how you came to be there was it because of the policy aspect or was it something else yeah um so i'll answer this in two parts one about like why i chose georgetown and the other about there is kind of a hidden um astronomy world at Georgetown that's been around for a, a very long time, actually. So about my decision at Georgetown, when it came to choosing schools um, in senior year of high school, I went to Georgetown Preparatory School up in Bethesda. So obviously, I was very aware of Georgetown. We had a shared history. It's in DC where I live, and it had been on my radar all, all, the entire time. But I did want to go into engineering. So Georgetown was not a school that I expected to go to, to be perfectly honest. It is, as you said, a policy school. People go there for the School of Foreign Service and also the McDonough School of Business. There is the college and uh, STEM programs, but it's not, it's, that's not what it's nationally known for. That's not its, its, its kind of trademark. Um, so when it came down to choosing schools, um, there was a bunch of places I got into, a bunch of places I didn't get into. And it came down between Georgetown and Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. And this was, a, this was a difficult decision. I found out about my acceptance to Georgetown last. It was the last school I heard from. And up until that point, I knew I was going to go to Rensselaer. I, I was... I was committed. The only thing that wasn't binding me was the fact that I hadn't submitted a deposit yet, just in case. So the issue was the fact that Rensselaer had engineering and everything that I wanted to do. Logically speaking, that's where I would have gone. But Georgetown had a lot of other factors that I couldn't ignore. First, it had a global network. And while your academics and your experiences are half of the battle, networking and meeting people in the industry and meeting people who do what you want to do is the other half. You need to have that networking aspect and Georgetown's network being a worldwide, having a worldwide reach, I just could not ignore. Um, on, that, on that note of networking, my inspiration for becoming an engineer 
was in 2016 when Boston Dynamics released their video spot for the first time on YouTube. When I saw that video, I, rem I remember thinking like, this is what I want to do. Engineering is the route I want to go. And I knew I wanted to work specifically in robotics. So I knew the what, but I didn't know the why. I didn't know what I wanted to do robotics for and for whom. So when I was thinking about Boston Dynamics, I knew that they were formerly owned by a company called SoftBank, a Japanese investing firm. And they had Georgetown alum working there. And Georgetown had excellent study abroad opportunities. So next spring, from April to August, I will be studying abroad at Waseda University in Tokyo. And this has been, this is possible because of the, the international connections that Georgetown has provided me. Right. And, and let's pause for a minute. You mentioned Boston Robotics and the dog video. For the six people that don't know what you're talking about, that is the very, very cool video clips of their robots that run on four legs that do all kinds of insane acrobatics. And, and of course, they have these very anthropomorphized robots that are bipedal and have arms and do gymnastics, which is always fantastic wow. eye candy, right? The, the yeah, stuff absolutely. they make. Is your eventual aim to be a roboticist and work for a company like Boston Dynamics if, if you could have your dream job? So my current goal is to work as a roboticist within the space industry. And that after joining GOSI and getting involved in the space community, that's when I found the why of, I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a robot, roboticist and the, the answer of for whom it was for space. And there are a lot of groups that interest me a lot. One of them is Nebula JPL. So Nebula JPL is a subset of the JPL NASA and they are working with different robotics companies, including Boston Dynamics, to train them and modify them to prepare them for missions in space. So they have a version of Spot that's completely modified for uh, Martian extraterrestrial excavation and exploration. So that that kind of uh, group is right up my alley, or Astrobotic, or Gitai Space in Japan, right. or any of these companies doing that involve robotics that are going to be used in space. Right. As a, a student in this area, what do you think you'll see the initial applications that these robots will be used for inside a vehicle, outside a vehicle on a extraterrestrial surface? Can you share what you think they'll do uh, the first jobs that we'll see them do? I really think all of the above to be perfectly honest, and they all have different purposes. So inside the vehicle, I believe it'll be more of us to assist people working there. It'll be for research. There'll be different, it'll be more machinery. Um, outside the vehicle, I think is a bit farther down the line, but my idea, well, we already have things like the Canada, the robotic arm, but there's a company that I've been interested in called Teleexistence in Japan, and they are combining robotics with virtual reality. And what they have done is basically uh, a human wears a VR headset and if they pick something up in virtual reality, uh, the robot that is connected to also picks up the item that they are picking up and they are seeing through the eyes of the robot. Right, this, that would be uh, augmented virtual reality? Essentially, but they would be interacting with real life objects, but right. separated from the body. It allows for remote physical work. 
And if perfected and mastered, if you combine this with the engineering feats as like the Atlas robot of Boston Dynamics that you were mentioning earlier, the one that does, that's done, the humanoid one that's done all the parkour and incredible um, movements, you could have robots replace astronauts in spacewalks. That in was just very, what I was gonna say. Yeah, it's very dangerous environment. I think satellite repair is a great opportunity for, you know, human assisted or autonomous satellite, uh, satellite repair or refurbishment or refueling even. I think those are all great venues. Well, um, I can imagine like crewed missions where you have humans and, you know, those robot counterparts, the AI counterparts. And it almost looks like Star Wars in my mind. Well, the NASA, somebody... I know I saw a NASA promotional video, the astronaut rolls up to a, a cliff or a dangerous area. You send the robots down into the canyon to do the surveying that's just too risky, you know, for the astronaut. So that's fantastic. I, I definitely see applications in the military and medicine, uh, especially if you couple robots and drones together, right? If you, if you couple vertical mobility here on Earth, you know, fantastic opportunities. So you're going to Japan. Uh, how is your Japanese and are you required to learn it to be fully immersed and acclimated at SoftBank? So I, I probably won't be working at SoftBank and um, no, I'm not fluent in Japanese. I have taken a, a year of it, but uh, it's not, I mean, it was a year ago that I took it a year. So it's, it's definitely a bit rusty. So I'll need to need to spend some time, especially over winter break, catching up and relearning a bit of it. Uh, for the program I am doing, I am not required to learn it. They have an English program there. Waseda is an international university. So I'm very thankful for that. Learning physics in, in English is hard enough. I couldn't imagine learning it in a foreign language. Um, but I am excited for the trip. And I mentioned a little bit about uh, my studying physics. Um, my academic background is I am a physics major and I'm getting a minor in mathematics. Um, and my hope is to go to graduate school for robotics advanced uh, automation. I am part of a Columbia program. So Columbia 4-2 program, I go to Georgetown for four years for physics. And then I go to Columbia University for two more years for another bachelor's in science for mechanical engineering. That's, that's going to yeah, set yeah. you up nicely yeah. for, yes. So you mentioned, uh, of course, GUSI. Tell us a little bit more about the access that you have uh, on the hill, basically, and uh, the presence of, you know, company headquarters in the area. Obviously, that has given you some advantages. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. So one interesting thing is that all these space companies, private and public, they all have small policy offices here in DC. So Virgin Orbit has a small office, Relativity Space has an office, SpaceX has an office, et cetera. The list goes on and on and on. So what we've been able to do is a lot of our speakers are from these companies. They are from the policy side of these companies because they're here in DC. These, these speakers come in person to speak with our members. We've done Zoom. We've done Zoom interviews in the past, but mainly over over the pandemic. So now that we we're back in school, we've been trying to have in-person speakers. Um, we have a lot of members, especially those in our policy team, who have internships on the Hill and work with representatives on a weekly basis, and they are able to they're able to learn from that experience and combine that with what they're learning at GOSI about the space industry to get a better understanding about how space policy can be worked, how we can 
develop it, what types of legislation we can run, and they are able to get a better grasp for how we can actually draft legislation. So what are some of those current issues that we might see that uh, a person would deal with regarding space legislation? All right. Um, the most interesting one I know that uh, for me at least, and for a lot of our members, is the issue of space debris. Absolutely. It is a, a very pressing issue that applies to all space companies and anyone who wants to go out or out of the atmosphere or into the atmosphere. Um, so there's a lot of work. We have, uh, we have students writing articles about space debris all the time. We one of our advisors is Chris Blackerby, who is the COO of Astroscale, which is a uh, international company that is focusing on removing space debris and increasing satellite uh, maintenance and sustainability. So okay. that there's that article, there's that issue, and then there's a, a few more. There's a few different ones, but I would say space debris is one of the ones we've been looking at the most. You know, I'm thinking about with. You know, when we talk about those the, the repercussions of the idea of AI and the idea of how you're going to use that in space, right, that makes me think about space ethics as well, right, and the idea of space law. So I imagine that's something that you get to look into um, as well with your group. Absolutely. One of our advisors, uh, Dr. William Kramer, has spoken to us multiple times, and he is a, he works with ethical biology in extraterrestrial um, lands. And so I remember the last talk he gave to us was about a old Mars mission where they collected samples of dirt and the way they searched for extraterrestrial light was uh, life was they would use these gases in the dirt to detect if there was light. And then after each um, sample was collected, they would then heat up the container to a very high temperature to sterilize it. And he was saying how he had written to the engineers saying that did anyone consider the ethics of this experiment because say there were microbes and say there were, was life that they found, that would mean that our first contact with extraterrestrial light would be to kill it. Yeah. And um, he, he remembers, I remember him showing us that the response from the NASA engineers was that uh, they, no one considered the, the immorality of killing the microbes that they could potentially have found the same way no one on earth consider, uh, considers the morality of all the microbes they kill when they step on the ground. And then we had a discussion about the assumptions that we are making. We're, uh, we're assuming that microbes and um, other life on in, in extraterrestrial planets, they work the same way as life on Earth. They are they're non-sentient like microbes on Earth. They, they, they're no different. So we can treat them the same way. And his argument was that we know nothing about this. So we have no right to, to we have no right to do this. And then there's the issue of terraforming. There's the issue of contaminating um, planets that have no human trace. And so we do talk a lot about space ethics. We meet in groups sometimes called space conversation. We discuss an issue that a, a student brings up. And so, yeah, no, that's definitely a topic. That, that would be fun to sit in on. Like a I would imagine, I would imagine we've contaminated everywhere we've landed. I, I can't, I, I think about the resilience of life on earth, right? We have these extremophiles. Some can survive in arid or, or de in a desiccated form or even withstand radiation. Uh, we know the Israelis after the fact plowed a bunch of tardigrades into the moon. Uh, but I would imagine that if we weren't perfectly, perfectly, you know, 100% uh, perfect in our decontamination of any spacecraft we sent to another body, there's a chance we could have already contaminated, you know, Mars, uh, maybe not Venus because of the temperature pH, but 
Definitely Mars. I'm thinking Mars. Uh, and did not we did we crash a satellite into Jupiter rather than let it fall into the moon that has the ice that we thought might uh, contain life? I think we intentionally flew. Might maybe it was Cassini into the Jupiter. I, I thought to keep from contaminating uh, another planet or another moon. That just makes me think for a moment of like a writing a sci-fi novel about the idea that, okay, the future, we're going to colonize space, but oops, we can't because we messed it up before we got to that point. Wow, that would so, be ironic. Yeah, it's a, it's a big issue because uh, the argument that a lot of biologists make is that as soon as we contaminate an environment, we can no longer legitimately look for life there. Because if we detect life where we have no, no, we have no way of knowing if we're the ones that introduced it. Right. I, I know that in, uh, well, I'm going to lean on some of my science fiction. Uh, often we'll create these zones where the humans are going to land. And that zone is sort of given up as it will not, we'll not search for life there because we've already contaminated it by simply landing there. And there would be zones set aside that would be pristine that you would leave alone as well. So mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, so you're at Georgetown, uh, what do you see as the next big milestone in your career uh, following your internship in Tokyo? Um, let's see. I mean, graduating, I think, is the biggest milestone coming up. Um, <laughs> but I mean, right now I'm focused on, on networking and, and running this organization. This is the first year I'm going to be president. I was a member, then I was director of communications, then I was chief outreach officer, and now I'm finally the president. So. I'm excited and I'm hoping I can bring good opportunities uh, to our students. I'm, I'm working with, I'm trying to work with SEDS UMD, uh, University of Maryland to provide more opportunities since they're, they're almost a mirror image of us. Um, while we have a lot of policy and very few opportunities in STEM, they're almost all engineers with some people that wanna do policy. So we're seeing if we can work together to provide students more opportunities. Um, right now, in terms of internships, uh, the study abroad in Japan will be will be interesting, but I don't believe I'll be able to work there due to how the visas work. I'm actually currently working an internship with an organization called Beyond Earth Institute. They're a space policy think tank. Um, and I know we have some opportunities coming down the line for GOSI members in general. I've been emailing with uh, one of our advisors, Dr. Bobby Alal, who works with NASA. Uh, she has some NASA projects that we'll be able to participate in in maybe late summer, early fall. We have one of our advisors, Michael Grasso, who used to be with Blue Origin, now is with uh, Dronos Propulsions, who is an alumni of Georgetown. He has some internship opportunities for students uh, beginning in the fall as well. And I know that for some of our alumni that recently graduated, Janice Starzik, who's one of the vice presidents in the government, I believe in government affairs for Virgin Orbit, reached out to us about a opening for, I think, I believe the position was a legislative associate for Virgin Orbit. So what we, what I've been doing mainly is I, I'm essentially the networker of the organization. My job is to find the opportunities and provide those for our students. And so I guess to answer your question about milestones, for me, obviously the next milestone is to graduate since I'm nearing the end of my, my Georgetown term. But I'm focused right now on creating opportunities to help our students reach larger milestones, whether it's their first networking event, the first event they travel to, um, getting involved in their first space project, their first internship, getting those opportunities and jump-starting their careers is, is our goal right now. 
you know, when we met with Sarah earlier, she let us know that SEDS has a high school chapter, for example, and we were kind of chatting about that a little bit. And it makes me wonder about your chapter as well. Do you ever do uh, any opportunities where high school or even younger can kind of listen in on those space conversations you were talking about? Or uh, are there ways for younger students to kind of become members or does it only for Georgetown? So I think it's a yes and no. Um, first, we are relatively new. We were created in 2019 and then the pandemic hit. So we almost immediately went virtual. Uh, for our in-person meetings, it is Georgetown students only um, just because of room and paperwork and that kind of thing, liability. Uh, we, we have, it's Georgetown students only. However, a lot of the products that we produce, the information, the research, that's all available. Uh, on our website, if you go to the uh, guspaceinitiative.com or if you just look up in Google, Georgetown University Space Initiative, we, we should be the first ones that come up. In writing, in the writings tab, you can find all of the articles and re research papers and reports that our students have written. That information is all available for anyone to read. Uh, you can go on our LinkedIn and see any posts that we've done about our students on our Instagram and on our YouTube channel, we have various interviews that we've had with different members of the industry and also some panels that we've done. I think the, the best example is last year, there's two good examples. Last year, we had the Women's Leadership in Space panel that was a huge hit. It went viral before it occurred. So we had like, we had tons and tons of people attend that were outside of the organization. It was a public panel. And then this past year, we had the pleasure of hosting a commercial space station panel with some heavy hitting panelists. We had Christine Kretz, who is the head of ISS. We had Chris Blackerby, COO of Astroscale. We had uh, Jeffrey Mamber, who works with Voyager Space and NanoRacks. And Voyager Space is a, is a company that's working to create a private space station after the retirement of the ISS. And also from Voyager Space, we had Clay Mori. So we had these four excellent panelists and on our YouTube channel for anyone to see is a, I believe an hour and 20 minute panel of uh, us speaking to these, these, these workers in the industry talking about the future of space stations and um, yeah, so any, while our meetings are for our members only. All the information we produce is public. So social media, so they would just go to uh, Georgetown Space Initiative. Is that correct? Just I'll link yes. it in the chat or whatever. So uh, the G, it's guspaceinitiative.org. Here, I could drop the uh, link in spaceinitiative.org. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Well, we are to that time where we're coming to the end, and we always try to end with kind of that same questions. We have mostly our audience of students and parents even, um, and, and educators. So for a student who's thinking about how do I get involved in space, and I kind of thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but I also like to tinker and I'm an engineer, uh, what advice do you have for those kinds of students? I would say I have two things, and sorry if I go a little bit over time, um, but no, I, this, is, this, in my opinion, is the most important question. Um, so if you want to get involved in, as a student, the first thing to do is to find a student group. And whether that's a, local, a small chapter or a small group in your university or part of a larger organization like SEDS USA. So SEDS USA, I know you guys spoke to Sarah uh, uh, all about SEDS, so I won't, I won't repeat all of that. But we are a large organization with hundreds of university chapters. And if you go to the, the SEDS.org, if you go to the SEDS website and click chapters, you can see a map with all the locations. And on, when you click one of the chapters, it has their 
their contact information and where they are and their address. So you can find a SEDS chapter. And as you said, there are high school chapters as well. So even if you're in high school, it's something to look at. And when you're looking for colleges, um, if, if space is something you really wanna do, take that into consideration. If you see a college you wanna to go to has a SEDS chapter, reach out to them, see if they're active, see what projects they're doing and see if you can meet with some of their members. I know, I know they would be more than happy to help. But I cannot emphasize enough that what a student needs to do is start networking. It is, it is incredible. I, and I can tell a story about how I started. Um, obviously I joined GOSI, that was when I first uh, got introduced to the space industry, but things really took off when I attended the panel that we hosted, the, the Women Leadership in Space panel. We were talking about mentoring, and I believe his name was Matthew uh, uh, Gebert. Um, I, I I would have to check. Um, it's been a it's been a few years, but he posted in the he typed in the the Zoom chat saying, "Hey, if anyone needs advice or mentoring or a push in the right direction." just message me on LinkedIn and I can see what I can do to help. So I remember contacting him afterwards and we spoke for a little bit and he shared me, he shared with me a document, a long Google doc of information that he had collected about in the space industry for the past, I believe five years. And one section of it was organizations to join and he ranked them by price. So I immediately joined all the free ones. Um, and one of those was a Space Generation Advisory Council. I followed them on LinkedIn. I became a member. I started looking at their events. And then I applied and was accepted for the Space Generation Fusion Forum using the GOSI as my company. I was able to travel to Colorado Springs and uh, to the Broadmoor Hotel and attend the three days of the Space Generation Fusion Forum and the first day of Space Symposium, which is like the biggest yeah, I've been there one time. I was like, and I'm not a space person. Very, but very pricey. Overwhelmed yes. by like just all the awesomeness. And being able to go to that as a student was incredible. I remember when I got there, that was my first networking event ever. I was in my my like formal attire, major imposter syndrome. I met these incredible people. The people who picked me up from the airport um, were a group that knew each other because they went on a three month Mars analog mission. And they were all PhDs and they were just, I just, they were just my ride. And right off the bat, after landing in Denver, I was already meeting incredible people who I never thought I would ever be in a room with. And what you realize is these companies aren't as untouchable as you think. When you're a student, you see these companies that you want to work with, but you have no idea how to reach them. And you think it's, and you would need some sort of incredible luck for you to be able to even meet someone from those companies. In reality, the people who work there are just people. They're, they're people who are interested in the same things you're interested in. And if you want to work with them and you, you need to meet people from those companies and they're gonna be at these events and organizations like the Space Generation Advisory Council, SSPI, AIAA, NSS, they are going to take people who already are working the roles you wanna work in and already living the life that you're, you're aspiring to live, they'll put them in the same room as you and the rest is up to you. They've presented you the opportunity and it's your job to network and to, to, to seal the deal and make those connections. Um, 
so yeah, I think students, if they want to get involved, they need, they need to, they need to just try. It's, it's a lot easier than I think a lot of people realize. And that's, that's what the, the roles of SEDS and GOSI, that's what we serve to do. We, we try to, we work to introduce students to this lifestyle. We make it easier. Starting to network on your own, starting to get involved in your own, do the research, it's very difficult and it's very time consuming. So it's our job. It's the job of the people already involved to step in and see how we can help students that are just starting out. And we're the ones that are going to shape the next generation of the space industry. We need to find those students and we need to find the people willing to work. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of really fascinating information for me, particularly because like I, I, I'm always the imposter, right? When I started working with Kevin, it was just my debate kids were also his CubeSat kids and they were going to speak at places. And I was like, oh, I will help them speak, you know, and they, they'll share their content. But I always feel like I know nothing about space. And yet that idea of networking in general, even I've kind of had to get used to it as an adult and it really it was quite a change about, you know, how you recognize that you do fit in with people. Most of us go with that idea that, no, we don't fit in. They're never going to talk to us. That kind of thing. What a great skill. Thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon and for sharing all of these insights. I, I know that we'll be in contact again, but it's really a pleasure to meet you personally. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. Please let me know if you, if you ever want to speak again or need any help. I know Kevin, we're going to work on the, uh, the lunar rover thing with the, with the, uh, cube set um, right absolutely and that's my son who's the one at ucf and who's uh, working on that so when, when, when you guys get together down the road that would be another great podcast topic is to have you guys come back and talk about the amaris lunar rover so yeah. that that's a down the road thing but uh, andres thank you so much uh we we appreciate you spending time with the wolf pack last week and thank you for letting us interview you this week we hope you have a great day good hunting on all your adventures all right. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Well, I enjoyed actually talking with Andres. I was excited to kind of hear him when he came to the Wolfpack. So getting a chance to speak myself with my interest in policy was good. Yes. And uh, I like how he's he's in space, but he's really well-rounded, right? So he's, he's, he's engaging in the areas of policy and, and problem solving. But he's also a physics student heading towards being an engineer. Yeah, so. I found that interesting, right? Because it's kind of like the two worlds that you think are like separate, the, the tinkerers, the, the creators, the engineers, and then the, the talk, it's like the talkies and the techies, he's both of them, yeah? Absolutely. And uh, and so uh, for our listeners, uh, Andres did present uh, last week at our Wolfpack, and he gave a great presentation, really, uh, I thought was inspirational and informative. Uh, so he's the ideal kind of young person to reach out to yeah. work with our kids so and I also loved his advice you could tell he's really excited he's the kind of guy that you want to like lead your program he's almost like a you know uh, the, the perfect guy to recruit somebody in. you can just tell he's really excited about this work and that Absolutely. makes it even more fun to talk to people like that well we hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of course and with that you'll join us next week when we again say let's, let's go, go to space, space.